Hello, welcome to Nature, Mono, an environmental humanities podcast. I'm your host, John L. Pitt. This is episode six of season one, Oceanic Japan. My guest for this episode is Dr. Sujung Kim, Associate Professor of Religious Studies at DePaul University. Dr. Kim is author of the 2020 monograph, Shinra Myojin, and Buddhist Networks of the East Asian Mediterranean. Her book offers a transnational account of the deity Shinra Myojin, a name which means the god of Shila, Shila being one of the pre-modern Korean kingdoms. Shinra Myojin was worshipped in medieval Japanese Buddhism from the 11th to the 16th centuries, and by foregrounding this deity, Kim is able to explore an oceanic network she identifies as the East Asian Mediterranean, a network that included Japan, the Korean kingdoms, and China. Kim's work challenges the easy narrative that Buddhism came to Japan from China via the Korean kingdoms, and instead presents a medieval world in which human actors moved across these spaces connected by the sea. It's a fascinating work that brings together religion, seafaring, immigration, and mythology. It does a rare and powerful thing. It takes a figure often marginalized in academic study, in this case Shinra Myojin, and convincingly argues for its central importance in such a way that it causes us to rethink our assumptions about just what the past looked like. A quick note, near the end of our conversation, we experienced a brief moment of technical difficulty. So if you hear a sudden change in audio quality, that's the reason why. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Su Jung Kim. Well, thank you so much for joining me here today. It's really wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk with you about your book, uh, which again is titled Shinra Myojin and the Buddhist Networks, I'm sorry, and Buddhist Networks of the East Asian Mediterranean, um, is that I really had no prior knowledge whatsoever of Shinra Myojin uh, before reading this work. But your book does this really, really convincing job of placing this figure, right, Shinra Myojin, at the center of this trans-Pacific network that you call the East Asian Mediterranean. And so I'm, I'm really intrigued by this reconceptualization of space, um, and I want to discuss your use of that term, East Asian Mediterranean. But before we get to that, um, I thought it might be useful for our listeners if you could just give us, you know, some idea, some of the broad strokes of who or what this figure is, Shinra Myojin. Okay, thank you so much for the invitation, first of all, and also thank you for the very insightful question. Um, and also, I'm really happy to be uh, part of this uh, Oceanic uh, Japan podcast series. So um, I'm very grateful here. And also I really like the, your framing of the reconceptualization of space as a sort of int uh, intriguing point of my work. And I really think that is, uh, I hope that that was one of the main takeaways from uh, my book. And uh, the question about who or what Sheila Mujin is, it's actually a very simple question, but that was really the key research question when I was writing the book. So, um, it's actually the answer is very complicated to you know uh, delineate, but I like to do my best. Maybe uh, in a way, 
that is more accessible to you for those of you who do not know Shila Myojin. So basically my book is, uh, in a way it's uh, an attempt to redefine who this deity is and how it is uh, reimagined in the medieval Buddhist, um, Japanese Buddhist uh, culture in a more broader cultural context. So um, in the previous Japanese language scholarship, there are a couple of you know, um, articles about this deity. So in, in it, the deity is very narrowly defined. Mm. Uh, it has been understood as a sort of Japanese uh, Buddhist deity. Um, in Japanese, we call it Go Hojin. So Go means to protect and the Ho means um, Buddhist Dharma and Jin meaning um, Buddhist God. So simply it's a it's protective deity of this particular um, Buddhist institution called the Tendai Jimon School, one of the two uh, most influential or three influential Buddhist power blocks from the Heian period all the way uh, throughout the medieval Japanese uh, Buddhism. So what I do in my book, or at least what I wanted to do is to, um, by looking uh, closely some key texts such as uh, Jimon uh, Temple Chronicles, mostly produced um, during the medieval time period. Uh, but only we have a little bit later, uh, sort of 14th, 15th century chronicles, because a lot of them were burnt or mm. um, lost because there sure. was very um, sort of uh, heated uh, competition and violence between these two Tendai siblings. So a lot of very essential documents about Shila Myojin also got lost mm. between this um, Tendai schism. But anyway, uh, by looking at those, uh, whatever left and other historical sources and archeological or other visual sources kind of seems to suggest that Shila Myojin had actually many different faces mm. and maybe even numerous lives throughout his long career. So in a nutshell, um, Shila Myojin, I can say that it's a composite deity that um, points us to look at um, ancient connections between Korean kingdoms and Japanese Buddhist institutions, but also like the larger connections between Shila immigrants, um, their diaspora around this uh, East Asian uh, maritime network. But more significantly, um, so there are different sort of stages of Shila Myojin's career, but what, when he becomes really interesting is during the medieval time period. So mm -hmm. he enjoyed his sort of uh, renewed fame or um, cultural capital, so to speak, um, especially during the medieval uh, religious milieu. And in my book, I, in each chapter, I tried to build up this kind of narrative uh, how he's not simply one particular deity. He's not, it's very difficult to define, but he kind of also defies a lot of these very neat categories that um, earlier scholarship tend to um, sort of use as a sort of simplistic definition of who Shila Myojin is. But um, going back to this uh, whole podcast series, I think what is probably uh, more relevant to our today's conversation is that he's, Shila Myojin starts his career as a sort of a seafaring deity. So the very beginning of his uh, career starts with this, him appearing in front of this Japanese 
um, student monk who went to Tang China and on his way back, this deity appears out of nowhere, but, but uh, before the sea storm comes. And then this uh, Shila Myojin sort of blackmail the um, Japanese monk. If you do not worship me, you'll be in trouble. So right. <laughs> some monk says, okay, I will do it. So then sort of that's kind of the context, but that idea of uh, connection to sea becomes very important later on in his um, career too. So I don't know, I, I, I hope that I kind of um, gave you some idea, but yeah, he's very complex, composite yeah. deity. No, that's that's. I, I think you 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 answered that question very well, and I, I see how right it is a deceptively simple question, right? I mean, you're right. I think the book really is trying to address that question, right? Who who is this person, this exactly. deity? What is it, right? Um, and there is no easy answer for it. Uh, and you know, a lot of what you um, just said, we'll come back to later in, in our conversation. You know, I'm really interested in these textual documents that you talked about, um, as well as this, this origin story, right? So I'll, I'll ask you about that a little bit later too. But um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm so intrigued by this concept of an East Asian Mediterranean, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, you know, foregrounded in the title of your book, you use it, you know, throughout the text as well. Um, and so in your introduction, this is kind of how you explain the idea. Uh, I'm gonna read this at length a little bit here. You write that the idea of an East Asian Mediterranean, quote, provides a fruitful framework for understanding the diffusion, interaction, and density within the networks that linked China, Korea, and Japan, and other locations. While this term can refer to the actual bodies of water that we now call the East China Sea, the Yellow Sea, and the East Sea slash Sea of Japan, um, instead, I use the word Mediterranean to draw the reader's attention to the way in which these waters did not separate China, Korea, and Japan, but rather served as the primary conduit for this uh, cross-cultural influence and exchange, end quote. And then a few lines later, um, you, you make this claim, quote, with this shift in thinking, the sea becomes the spatial center as well as the channel through which connections are made and maintained. When we closely examine the East China Sea and surrounding waters in a similar manner, we, we begin to see connections between Buddhists and Buddhist institutions in China, Korea, and Japan in a completely new light, end quote. So really, really fascinating claims here. Um, and I guess I have a two-part question um, based on these, these sections that I just read. So first of all, I, I wanna get a sense from you why you think seeing the connections between Buddhists and Buddhist institutions in China, Korea, and Japan um, is so important to you, you know, within the field of religious studies. And then secondly, you know, why do you think the concept of the East Asian Mediterranean is able to accomplish this in ways that, you know, these more, maybe not traditional, but typical notions of the Trans-Pacific are not, right? So in other words, what, what is it about this term Mediterranean, the idea of a Mediterranean that you find so useful? Thank you for the wonderful questions again. So um, the, for the first question, I think in the field of religious studies or Buddhist studies, that's how I define my scholarly mm. identity. Mm -hmm. So Buddhist studies in particular, um, previous scholarship that I think uh, often uh, fall into this um, modern nation state model, you know, so that, um, and it is partly and also practically um, 
uh, inevitable because you know there's this huge language barriers, right? If you want to um, study um, Japanese Buddhism well, I think it is important to learn Chinese as well, but also Korean as well. But you know, as one scholar who did everything, it seems a little bit um, uh, impossible. But uh, in the in the Buddhist studies now, you see more sort of um, cross bordering or cross cultural or trans. Uh, cultural uh, sort of uh, approaches very um, um, sort of emerging. And, um, but I think what I see um, uh, important thing is uh, if you look at, um, you know, not uh, from the landlocked vision, but from the sea perspective, you see the, you know, the, you know, what we normally call Chinese or Japanese and Korean Buddhism in a totally different light. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of uh, my sort of critique on the previous scholarship um, who's, you know, just like the, how you define Shilam Myojin, right? If you look at just as a Japanese deity, the deity is not so, you know, significant even. But if you look at it in a broader uh, East Asian context, then the deity becomes really um, sort of opens up much bigger uh, research questions. So that's the first um, sort of my answer to the first question. And uh, for the second question, um, so when I was giving like uh, conference talks or, you know, some presentations about Shila Myojin during my uh, earlier career, mm -hmm. um, that is the first, very first question. So I'm really <laughs> glad that you also, you know, um, brought up this again. So the, the idea, uh, East Asian Mediterranean, I'm not the first one who are using that term, but I'm using it more strategically. In other words, the term Mediterranean, um, the very famous uh, French um, historian, um, Brodel, and Brodel uses it in a very, um, much uh, interconnected way. In other words, uh, in Brodel's use of that uh, term Mediterranean, it's not just about a massive sea. Mm -hmm. it's, he actually tried to show the connections between the sea and the land. And in my case, I'm extending to this idea to the connection between the sea and the mountain. So mm -hmm. what, you know, Brodel's, you know, much bigger temporally or spatially in his very broader vision, um, what is important is not shifting our vision to the sea, but also seeing it, you know, through the connections, right? So, um, of, um, so in along this line of thinking, I think um, two steps are sort of uh, necessary to be remembered. So one is shifting our uh, conventional or um, um, landlocked vision to more sea-centered, but once that is established, it's also important to see the connections between the land and sea. So I think that was uh, something that I was hoping to achieve um, mm -hmm. on a theor theoretical level in my uh, work. Yeah, that's great. I think, I think it works really well. Um, it's a very, very convincing use of the term throughout the book. And you. yeah, you know, I, I, I can see how tying the land and the sea together in that way, um, you know, does all these things that you're looking to do. And, and something I think your book does really, really well is to 
it'll complicate these really, really dominant historical narratives, um, both about Buddhism in Japan, um, but also about the presence of, of immigrants, right, from Shila in Japan, particularly mm -hmm. around the region um, around Lake Biwa. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm going to read another quote uh, from your book here. You write that quote, whereas many scholars have drawn our attention to the Chinese cultural influence on all things Japanese, little attention has been paid to the Korean transmission of Buddhist culture to Japan, end quote. Um, so I'm curious why you think this has been the case, uh, why you know little attention has been paid specifically to the Korean transmission of Buddhist culture. And you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this question because um, you make this other claim throughout the book um, and you've mentioned it a little bit already today, right? Which is this idea that Shinra Myojin really isn't either a Korean deity or a Japanese deity, right? But you also say he's not either a Buddhist deity or a, or a Shinto Kami, right? Um, so I guess my question is, right? Um, so so why, why do you think there has been this neglect of the Korean, you know, the perspective on the Korean transmission of Buddhist culture? And then how, how does that sort of fit into this idea, um, you know, that Shinra Myojin is really neither, we can't really say it's Korean or Japanese or Buddhist or Shinto. Thank you. Uh, yet another a great question. Um, so, so I guess there are two parts. Um, so for the first part where why Korean Buddhism has been uh, traditionally neglected, um, not only to Japan, but also more in general. Um, sure. It's, I guess, um, so in the previous scholarship, uh, people who are engaged in um, uh, Japanese Buddhism, they are more interested in, you know, the place of China in the, you know, their construction of where Japan fits into this larger East Asian uh, framework. And the, uh, the positionality of China becomes really uh, the major uh, research question. Um, in it, a lot of, um, uh, so that's one, one sort of scholarly tendency, but there, there are other practical problems to, uh, for the scholars not to fully uh, understand Korean Buddhism itself or its relationship to um, its neighboring countries has not been fully understood because also um, there are not so many uh, uh, resources that mm. scholars uh, can rely on. The always written you know, textual uh, information about Korean history comes 13th century, right. whereas we have, you know, um, Kojiki and Yonshoki coming from much earlier and even Fudoki, right? right so right. there's definitely this large sort of um, gap in terms of research materials. And actually that was one of the reasons why I kind of chose Japanese Buddhism as my primary um, sort of um, research area because when I started my graduate work, I was more interested, from the beginning, I was very interested in sort of um, East Asian Buddhism as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, but initially I was more interested in centering Korea for my dissertation, but then <laughs> not that many, um, you know, um, historical resources that can, I can utilize and make sense of it. So um, Japan was sort of my, that's kind of how I entered to Japanese studies more in a lateral um, um, point. Mm -hmm.
but um, a lot of new scholarship now tends to sort of rectify that tendency, like, you know, because in Buddhist studies often when you do some of China and some of Japan, people say, this is how East Asian Buddhism look like. And right. that also kind of undermines, you know, what kind of role Korean Buddhism played in this East Asian um, um, sort of uh, region. But like scholars uh, such as Robert Boswell, he's very well known um, Korean Buddhism scholar at UCLA, um, kind of uh, uh, emphasize again and again, Korean Buddhism is not just a bridge that connects China and Japan, it's more than that. And he's somewhat a little bit outdated because the book came out 2005, but he uses this kind of um, um, oceanic metaphor so that's why i'm bringing up here but mm-hmm. uh, currents and countercurrents that's a edited volume title and try to show the the interactions were both both ways not just one korea from japan a lot of scholars also korea scholars tend to make that claim every mm-hmm. you know superior buddhist culture any advanced technology coming from china uh, china to korea and korea to japan but if you look at that kind of lineal um perspective it doesn't really fully um allow us to understand what was going on on the ground so my sort of um goal was not to fall into that kind of lineal discourse but and also very sort of um, firmly grounded modern state um, um, paradigm, but try to um, be careful about, on the one hand, not to sort of lionize Shila Myojin as a hugely important Korean contribution to Japanese religion. This is not what I try to do that either. Mm -hmm. I like to uh, be made very careful about um, this sort of very simplistic or sometimes problematic nationalistic uh, approach. But rather, I like to see more um, sort of interactions or two-way streets um, sort of um, movements between different actors or different deities or different geographical points and how they kind of make some sort of interactions and cha- exchanges over a long period, period of time. So for that, Sheila Myojin came to me as a very uh, viable candidate to right. explain these things. You know, it's 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 so fascinating because, uh, yeah, I think you're right. The the very traditional sort of story, right, is that yeah, it's it, it's sort of a clear path, you know, China, Korea, and then to Japan. Um, and so I can see how Sheila Myojin becomes one of these you know, figures that, that really, really complicates that, um, that sort of easy historical narrative. Uh, but I can also see what you're saying that, you know, the, the textual tradition goes back, well, at least what, what, what survives, right? It goes back further in Japan. We have older texts to work from. Um, and as somebody who works primarily on literary texts myself, I really was drawn to your detailed discussion of the ways in which Shinra Myojin circulates through, you know, all of these textual documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and also by how you were able to place uh, Shinra Myojin's Engi, right? Mm-hmm. His origin story, which which you've already discussed a little bit. Um, you, you were able to put that within this longer tradition of sea narratives, um, which date back, you know, to pre-medieval times, right? Mm-hmm. So um, you've already 
given us, you know, a, a kind of an account of uh, this Engi, of, of how Shinomyojin appears, um, you know, on a sea voyage. But what are some of the elements it shares with some of these older stories, right? So we have the Shiotsuchi no Oji story, right? That's included in the Kojiki, the Nihon Shoki. Um, how does Shinra Myojin kind of fit with these older mythological tales? Mm -hmm. Yeah, another yet yeah, very intriguing uh, question. So thank you so much for reading my book so carefully. <laughs> <laughs> it really was, it's, I mean, it was so fascinating, um, oh, again, because you. it was it was something I really knew nothing about. And, and I, I came out of it feeling like it was this whole world opened up to me, so. Awesome. So, um, and also that uh, particular um, sort of idea of this sort of mythology is something that I got really interested in um, so, but when it comes to Japanese mythology, you know, we know this Kojiki, early, seventh, early 8th century text, and Nihon Shoki has a lot of stories about awesome beings, right? Crazy stories. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Shiojitsu no Oji is one of the sort of very archetypical uh, sea gods, right? Um, mm -hmm. Those of you who are not so familiar or kind of forgot about the, this particular deity, it kind of appears uh, in the story where um, there is a, this sea brother and the mountain brother, and there's some sort of conflict between the two. And then when the mountain brother kind of lost his, um, what was it? Um, he had to, um, he kind of had to uh, catch a fish, but he kind of lost his fishing rod or something like that. Yeah, the hook or something. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And then we see this Shujutsu no Oji appears and helping this um, mountain god who became useless on the, on the seashore. So again, there are a lot of tales that kind of, you know, make me to think that Sika doesn't stand alone. It has deeper sort of functional or mythological connection or symbolic connection to the mountain, which both of them have some sort of creates this um, of limits to human, and it's kind of often in you know um, ancient and medieval sort of imagination where gods and kami dwell. And um, but anyway, going back to this Siotochino Uzi, um, what is interesting when you look at different uh, tales about different gods in Japanese pantheon, mm -hmm. um, especially recorded in Kojiki and Yonshoki, and there's there's this technical term that we call the Kigi Shinwa in Japanese. So Ki coming from Kojiki Ki and then Nihonshoki Ki, so Kiki Shinwa, Shinwa meaning uh, mythology. So in the traditional Kiki Shinwa, we see a lot of this kind of similar sort of pattern where um, old man looking deity kind of appears and you know out of mostly sea um, or sometimes mountain too, but giving some sort of help uh, or sort of, um, yeah, so there's some sort of pattern. And what is interesting about going back to your question uh, of Shila Myojin Engi is that as far as I know, Shila Myojin Engi, um, which is coming from 11th century, the written part, um, it may exist earlier, earlier, but what we know have is this oldest one is 11th century. But this is really the first sort of um, account that uh, produced uh, similar uh, sort of uh, structurally similar, but all different variations of 
uh, Buddhist monks encountering old man looking deity above sea mm -hmm. when they were in danger, you know, uh, encountering sea storm or shipwreck and all these things. So this is sort of interesting how these variations in the later periods kind of all kind of referring to another is referring to but kind of points to us to look wants to study why you know this particular narrative becomes sort of a referential point. So that was uh, what I got really interested in. And um, one thing that I wanted to mention is um, so Shila Myojin has two stages of development. So one is more this Kiki Shinwa, well, although Shila Myojin doesn't appear in Neon Shoki or uh, Kojiki, right, but right. he has earlier sort of um, um, career. But as I earlier, uh, mentioned earlier, Shila Myojin Enki becomes re really important during the medieval time period, uh, mostly 11th, 12th century on, um, because that's a time period, very in interesting happened during this time period among Japanese intellectuals. They were uh, long, Kojiki is long forgotten for a long mm -hmm. time. It was re rediscovered much later time at the period. But uh, Nyon Shoki has been thoroughly and continuously studied by Japanese courts, you know, um, officials and the emperors. And they really were curious about um, how to make sense of this, you know, um, um, text. Mm -hmm. And during the medieval time period, when they their um, sort of understanding of Buddhism got really matured, they kind of combined these um, ideas Neon Shoki and you know Buddhism, and they kind of create very totally new types of narratives. And this we call it Chusei uh, Shinwa in Japanese, so medieval mythology. So what is really interesting about this Chusei Shinwa world is it's really strange and very crazy, you know, <laughs> stories of gods. And mm -hmm. what is really bizarre is their identification is always very fluid. It's not mm -hmm. like, you know, this A is B, it's A is B and C and also D. <laughs> so it's really, really confusing and um, um, complex. But what I'm trying to say here is that um, the Chuse uh, Shinwa or medieval uh, time period is where Shula Myojin gains his uh, sort of um, second life. So to speak. Right. And so that kind of fluidity that you're talking about there, I think that even goes back a little bit to address this question of, of how Shinra Myojin can be neither Buddhist nor Shinto Kami, right? Exactly. Korean or Japanese. Mm -hmm. And if I remember correctly, um, in your book, you you mentioned how, you know, this this sort of era of mythology hasn't really been taken very seriously in exactly. academic scholarship. Mm -hmm. So that is also something new that you're you're bringing to this um, this work in this field is really looking critically um, at the kind of complexities and the fluidities and, and you know in the mythology of this medieval time mm -hmm. and what you're able to sort of draw out of that, which I think is really exciting. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, and you know I think one of the things sort of with that is how throughout the book you grant a certain certain level of agency to mm -hmm. this figure um mm -hmm. you know for myself I'm, I'm very interested in this question of agency especially 
outside of the human, right? Mm -hmm. And so taking a, a, a religious deity, this figure um, seriously uh, as something with historical agency was really exciting to read. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways that you're, you're able to do that in your book is uh, bringing in, you know, actor network theory. Mm -hmm. And again, I, you know, I, I'm not someone who, who really is so um, conversant in Buddhist studies, religious studies, but can you say a little bit about how actor network theory informs your writing and whether or not this is something common within Buddhist studies, mm -hmm. or is this sort of another intervention that you're bringing to the field? Mm -hmm. Um, thank you again. So um, I absolutely agree with your um, sort of uh, emphasis on the agency question, because that was really big thing that I um, wanted to solve in the, with this uh, Sheila Mujin's case. And um, so, and within Buddhist studies, scholars tend to be comfortable with talking to each other. Mm -hmm. so, um, using sort of anthropological uh, theories are not that common, although my intellectual sort of um, lineage, which, you know, I'm very indebted to uh, Bernard Ford uh, at Columbia University, uh, he uses this idea, um, which I also learned from him, but also scholars like Fabio Rambelli also takes this question of agency very seriously. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, what is really interesting is about the study of things or non-human actors, right? Because they are really marginalized within sure. this scholarship. In Buddhist studies, what is most, mostly favored is eminent monks, male, of course. Right. Um, and also their awesome texts, philosophical texts. Right? And those were uh, sort of very dominant um, sort of forces. Um, whereas gods, uh, especially the Chusei Shinwa that I just explained, even within Japanese scholarship, that was seen as some sort of tainted, impure uh, body of literature. It's not neither Shinto nor Buddhism. It's all mumble jumble of different crazy stories. So it has been sort of neglected for a long time period until very recently. So my research of Shilap Myojin kind of joins with this very new interest or sort of reclaiming this particular types of narrative and focus on non-human actors and their role to rediscover their voices in um, Buddhism or more um, accurately Japanese religions. So to think about how we can take these non-human actors more seriously, right? Mm -hmm. Not just person, people's imagination or some you know, um, fairy tale-like thing, but uh, in recent uh, anthropology and critical theory, they call this uh, um, ontological term. In other words, they take things very seriously and they are very interested in um, less human-centric, because uh, you know, anthropology by definition, they were very interested in what human does and very you know, human-centered angle. Whereas this new sort of approach um, in the ontological term, they look at uh, very ser seriously non-human actors, social and cultural role. So this is where the um, Bruna Latour and others actor net network theory becomes very handy or relevant to my 
uh, analysis, analysis of Shlemyogen. So what I try to claim is that he's not simply a, a symbol or dead god um, locked into this ritual altar, but probably it's, um, if you take gods more seriously, we begin to see that how these gods, including Shlemyogen, make people do things and change the course of history and also contribute to uh, contributing uh, in changing or shaping new religious culture and social reality. So again, so my goal is to sort of not to undermine human agency, but try to point to that fact that there is also important historical sort of agency that has been marginalized. So in my book, I tried to use the term actant uh, to refer to both non-human and human actors, if that uh, makes sense. And also um, Bruno Latour's uh, uh, actant idea is also important, but the network, right? This idea of network also becomes very useful for me because um, again, instead of, a lot of people are interested in, you know, Shilamyojin being Korean deity, it's very easy labeling. And I, I say that sometimes because, you know, it's very complicated, but yeah, let's say that for, for now, <laughs> right? But what I'm trying to say is that I'm not interested in, you know, tracing back the Korean origin of this, de this deity or his contribution. That is still part of the story, but much bigger part of uh, sort of my um, conceptualization of this particular um, example with particular example is I like to um, make people to think a little bit differently when we look at this more transcultural um, realm, we probably will be better at uh, explaining when we look at not uh, one linear, um, you know, uh, historical origin narrative, but rather if you put, put them in a more broader but network-based sort of visualized version, then you will see uh, different uh, aspects and seemingly unconnected events becomes a little bit more connected. And you see there are some nexus points that create some more meaning and more, um, you know, um, sort of um, closer or more nuanced understanding of particular historical, um, yeah, events or context. So going back to this idea of uh, network, um, another thing I think um, that I like to point to is that um, when you combine this actor network theory and also looking at uh, Buddhist network, this question of uh, intentionality or agency uh, uh, doesn't have to be that uh, a difficult question. Although um, scholars such as, um, so that has been actually a, one of the big uh, sort of conundrum, how can you reconcile uh, God doesn't seem to have agency and how can you, you know, um, explain this, this sort of uh, um, intentionality without a subject, 
Mm-hmm. So uh, scholars like um, not Buddhist scholars, but religious um, more Christian. Uh, what was religious scholars um, whose name is Manuel Vasquez. Um, he also kind of uh, makes a very cautious um, sort of. Uh, he warns that the potential danger to see gods in this kind of network model. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I try to do to remedy that potential danger is to sort of not seeing the networks that Shilamajin participates, not as a closed network, but more fluid and flexible and also sort of moving sort of uh, multi-directional structures. Um, I know it gets a little bit um, uh, abstract, but um, this is what I wanted to achieve in the book. And one last thing that I'd like to mention at this point is the idea of uh, Buddhist network seems to be really picking up, mm. which I'm very happy with. <laughs> but I also must uh, acknowledge that the very idea of Buddhist network, uh, not necessarily you know, in connection to actor network theory, but uh, it was already uh, introduced by this very seminal scholar in South Asian uh, uh, anthropology, Stanley Tambia in his um, 1976 um, work, he already mentions that. And since then, a lot of South um, East or South Asian scholars, Buddhist scholars uh, tend to sort of uh, use this term Buddhist network as a conceptual tool to sort of understand this very dynamic maritime networks. But my work is in a way kind of bringing this idea and applying to East Asian corner. Yeah. And um, that's what I did in the book. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting to hear you say, you know, or voice some concerns, right, about how you feel like maybe seeing things as a network, you know, re-questioning questioning agency, reframing agency, that it gets a little abstract um, because there is this whole other part of your book which is this very, um, you know, historical focus on human actors. Um, you know, and I, I'm thinking about the, the immigrants from Shila, right, um, to the Omi region of Japan, present-day Shiga prefecture. Um, you know, these are, these are actors, historical actors who have been, you know, neglected in, in scholarship. And so I think the, the network that you open up in the book allows you to not only rethink agency in terms of the non-human, but also in terms of, you know, marginalized human actors as well. Um, but I think, you know, to, to, to get at this history, um, thinking about, you know, the, the people from Shila who come to Japan, mm-hmm. you, you borrow another term from Bruno Latour, which is this, this idea of mediator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm curious about what that word does for you, how you understand that term and whether you are using that term um, as something of a corrective to the term immigrant, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I think you, you do voice some concern or, or at least some, mm-hmm. you're, you're questioning how apt the term immigrant is for um, this population um, in Japan at the time. So could you talk a little bit about, about that? Yes, thank you again for a great question. So um, there are many things that I feel I solved during this project, but also didn't really solve much <laughs> is this particular question about immigrants, because you know I don't even know that is the right term to even use it, right? 
they could have been refugees or expatriates or could have been just long-term residents or, you know, just so much unknowns about this particular sort of group of people that we are talking about. And sadly, there are not many um, historical resources that we can really unpack what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And what is even more complicated is um, very complex relationship between these different kingdoms, um, roughly 5th, 6th, 7th century, around this time period. There is Baekje, which had very close you know, um, tie with Yamato court, but there's a Shila. What, at one point they were sort of enemies, but then once Shila unified uh, the three kingdoms in Korea with the help of Tang China, then that's kind of when this um, Japanese emperor um, sort of moved the capital from Osaka to Omi, where the natal home of Shila Myojin and where the you know, Tendai institution headquarters are uh, located. So there are a lot to sort of uh, needs to be understood to, under, you know, to use this uh, particular, uh, correct term. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right that you know, mediators or some other terms that I use in the book are somehow to uh, not to be too caught up with this uh, complex, uh, you know, very unknown parts of um, history, ancient history between Korea and China, uh, Korea and Japan. But what I got really um, excited about is Latour's idea of meditator, a mediator is that um, I think uh, if I understood correctly, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's really um, speaking to this idea of um, sort of not just, you know, intermediary sort of culture force, but they are sort of more, um, more transformative than you think. And also they make other sort of agents do unexpected things. So what I really got out of is uh, this unexpected parts, you know, so very clear again, like actor do something. It's not what I'm sort of seeing it often, Often what we see is, you know, some unexpected, unexpected things happen without right. whether you intended or not. So for me, that was very sort of um, compelling sort of um, point to analyze what um, this immigrants group and also immigrants group, I, I'm saying sort of probably there are two different sort of uh, groups that I'm talking about. One is the um, sort of very strong Baekje or Shila immigrants, you know, landed around the Omi area in near the, um, the Lake Biwa. Another uh, immigrants are groups are the immigrants in uh, Shila immigrants in the much later period um, in uh, Shandong Peninsula in China. Right, right. So there are sort of several hundred years gaps that I'm talking about. And several hundred years later, we see the emergence of Shila Myoji. So I, I'm merely connecting these groups and all this circumstantial evidence suggests that Shila Myojin has this, this, this connection and all of these immigrants did something very unexpected things, which was sort of the giving the um, rise to the emergence of um, more individualized God whose name became Shila Myojin. 
uh, but also very paradoxically having very generic name, which is, you know, God of Deity of Sheila. <laughs> which is what the name means, it's right? Like, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that was what I got out of Latour's uh, idea. You know, one of, um, one of my other takeaways from this book uh, is that, you know, when we see religion in early Japan as environmental, right, that mm -hmm. we need to see it that way, right, that, that there is this deep connection between early religion in Japan and the environment, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in the way that most people think of that, right? I think for most people to think about the relationship between Japanese religion and the environment, you know, their minds automatically go to Shinto, right? Um, to, to Kami, to, to all of these things. But the history that you've brought together here, I think it's, it's a good reminder for us that, you know, Buddhism in many ways was a religion very much tied to the sea. Mm -hmm. um, and part of that comes out of the network that you've described. Um, and also, of course, within the storytelling that you've also talked about. Um, but there's also this new element, uh, at least it was kind of new to me in a way that I hadn't really thought about it, Right, which was the fact that Buddhist monks themselves were consumers, active consumers within this mm -hmm. mercantile trade and this mercantile world of the East Asian Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. So just given all of this, um, and you know, as someone who is a scholar of, of, of Buddhism, do you think it's fair to say that Buddhism was an oceanic religion in the mm -hmm. East Asian case? Um, yeah, I, I thought that's very, uh, I think very interesting way to look at um, and also kind of ties well with your podcast title too, right? right. Oceanic Japan. Um, I, I think absolutely you can say that, uh, Oceanic Buddhism, and also your uh, point making this, you know, monks as an active consumer or market, of mercantile um, maritime network. Mm -hmm. Um, and definitely from the very beginning of history of Buddhism, Buddhism was really hand in hand with this merchants and travel. It always has been a religion, a very mobile religion, right? So, and see, especially during the pre-modern time period as one of the major conduits of travels, definitely I think it has a potential and also maybe a good book title too. <laughs> <laughs> But one thing I'd like to make a short, uh, quick comment is mm -hmm. um, the public perception of, you know, separating Shinto and Buddhism and Shinto being easily sort of um, understood in the public's, you know, um, discourse, uh, very idealized uh, or pacifistic uh, approach to Shinto being very, you know, loving nature and environmental friendly religion, which is all sort of very later uh, ideologically mm -hmm. constructed narrative um, um, after the World War II. So I think um, it is important to remember, not necessarily, you know, separating Shinto or Buddhism, at least for uh, scholars like me who are interested in this medieval world, um, mm -hmm. that distinction doesn't really um, hold. Right, right. But I, I definitely see a lot of maritime connections to both, you know, religious systems. Sure, yeah. Well, that, that's great. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about where your research is headed, right? So this book is out. Um, I recommend everybody get a copy, read it. Because um, <laughs> it, it really, I have to say, I, I just found it so fascinating to, to engage with. Um, 
But so I, I, I do want to ask you about where um, your your next research is looking. Are you are you staying within this framework of the East Asian Mediterranean? Is it going to be something tied to the sea, or are you kind of branching out a little bit? Mm -hmm. Thank you. So um, just last week, I submitted this um, uh, short uh, piece, but uh, I think it will be uh, useful for a lot of people who are interested in sea and Japanese religion. So. Uh, young scholars um, uh, editing this book called The New Nanzang Guide of Japan's Religions. So this is sort of a companion volume of the earlier 2005 or seven. Um, um, anyway, so in it, I wrote a piece on the sea and Japan's religions, um, which I had a lot of fun, but um, <laughs> my bigger research uh, is but one thing that I also want to mention here is that I was so surprised by there are a lot of kind of newer research about Japanese maritime connection, Japanese, you know, Japanese history from seen from the maritime network or, mm -hmm. you know, um, this global sort of more um, sort of bigger transnational, uh, transnational sort of historical work, whereas religious studies are really, really lacking. Mm. Um, I just can't think of only one English Anglo Anglophone scholarship, which is, you know, um, already mentioned in the earlier podcast series, um, <laughs> um, the Fabio Rambelli edited volume, you know, so that is- Which, which really... you have a chapter in. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is probably the most, you know, the, the only one um, that really takes um, the sea seriously in the study of Japanese religions. So this is really something that I think future scholarship should do more. But for now, I'm sort of <laughs> uh, going away from the sea. Um, okay. So venturing out to, I'm crossing the sea to go to Korea. Mm -hmm. And uh, my most recent uh, sort of book project is um, again, I'm interested in material culture and mm -hmm. this question of, you know, material, not just some like things, your podcast, right, mo mono, right? right? right. <laughs> um, but more like a very um, sort of useful lens for scholars to look through and understand the human interactions and the world that is forgotten. So I'm very interested in um, another marginalized um, material called uh, talismans. Mm. So I'm very interested in Buddhist talismans in Korea. And luckily we have a lot of examples and untapped sort of um, large collections of woodblock prints mm -hmm. um, sitting on, you know, major, uh, at major uh, museums in Korea. So that's what I like to study um, to see more um, sort of, yeah, marginalized, marginalized practice because uh, talisman is seen as for the art history, it's not interesting enough. It's not high, you know, culture enough. Right. And for the historians, it's also very, very murky. It's not really Buddhism. It's not really Taoism and shamanism either. So I'd like to sort it out some of them. So that'll be my new project. That's great. I, I, I can see some of the connections already uh, between, you know, your first book and this project, that mm -hmm. sort of murky middle ground, right? Mm -hmm. Being exactly. being drawn to that. Yeah. That's well, more I, fun. <laughs> it is fun. I agree. Um, and it's it's important work, right? Uh, to, to, yeah, bring scholarship into some of these areas that, you know, previous 
academics, you know, felt were a little too questionable, right? Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's time that we address some of these things. So that's that's great. I really look forward to um, reading that work when it comes out. Thank you. Um, and so just one last question. This is the question I ask everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And that is, you know, what is your own relationship to the sea, to the mm -hmm. ocean? Did you grow up going to the ocean? Do you have a particular relationship with it? Um, so the my personal connection with the sea is, um, um, yeah, I'm, I'm born in a city called Busan in South Korea. And I grew up there until my high school time so I you know 15 minutes bus ride and there is a you know open white ocean and there are seven public beaches in Busan so I spent a lot of time there so similar to other uh, podcasts you know um, 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 participants in the uh, previous episodes I have very uh, similar sort of affinity to the ocean and the sea mm -hmm. and um, yeah my I don't know have you been to Busan I haven't, no. Mm -hmm. But not, yeah, also I yet. love seafood. So <laughs> not yet. Yeah, you you will. It's it's very um, easy if you are you know on uh, like northern part of Kyushu. You know, there's even ferry that goes between Busan and um, Fukuoka. Right. But anyway, um, I yeah, I love seafood. I love everything about sea. Um, sadly, I'm you know currently in Vienna where there's no sea. But there are some, you know, rivers and, you know, um, which, you know, also what I um, bring up in my book too, you know, uh, large lake, like, you know, uh, or, you know, rivers and all these things can be considered as a bigger part of, um, you know, East Asia Mediterranean. Sure. Anyway, sure. Um, so, yeah, definitely my personal interest in the sea and sea culture somehow melted into my uh, research as, research as well. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was really fascinating. And uh, yeah, I hope everybody goes out and reads your book. And I look forward to the Talisman Project um, when that comes out. Thank you so much, Sean. I enjoyed very much um, talking to you as well. Bye. Bye. Shinra Myojin and Buddhist Networks of the East Asian Mediterranean is available via University of Hawaii Press. My many thanks to Dr. Sujung Kim for taking the time to speak with me. Nature Mono is recorded and produced by me, John L. Pitt, with co-sponsorship support from the Humanities Center at the University of California, Irvine. Visit our website at naturemono, that's nature, M-O-N-O, dot com, and please subscribe and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.